0: Welcome, welcome, everyone. I always say whenever you have church on a holiday, you are the real Christians who actually come to church on national holidays. I'm really excited about our, our passage today that you read before. It's such a crazy story. We, in the summers at Redemption, we always turn to the Old Testament for um, several weeks in, in part because it's the Bible that Jesus read. And it shaped him in, like, important ways. And and so part of what we're trying to do is let that Bible shape us, too, so we can maybe get more insights into Christ's ministry. And this summer, we're studying the book of Exodus. And we left off last week, if you remember, with the burning bush, where um, God calls Moses to go speak to Pharaoh on behalf of um, God for the children of Israel. And Moses has, has all kinds of excuses but he finally relents and goes and he goes and tells his father-in-law, Jethro, who might be um, Yethro or Ruel or Hobab, depending on which part of the Bible you're in, but he has lots of names. But then he, he then um, relents, tells his father-in-law goodbye, and he heads off um, from Midian. So let's look at our map and we can catch up to where we are. So Midian is down there over to the right. So he, he goes up around the Gulf of um, Alkabah And down back down to Sinai, where he meets up with Aaron. God has told Aaron to leave Goshen and come down and meet. So they meet down there, and then they travel back up um, through Goshen. And we're told this in the end of chapter 4. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. Remember, because Moses doesn't want to talk. He wants Aaron to do all the talking. Um, He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, And had seen their misery they bowed down and worshiped and and this i I think last line has deep significance for us when the people heard that this god of their ancestors it was mostly folklore to them at this point had actually heard their cry was listening to them and concerned about them this god that you know abraham isaac and jacob seemed to talk to had actually seen their misery and and was responding to them, their response was they bowed down and worshipped. And they hadn't done this for a really long time. There was no organized Hebrew religion at this point. Their knowledge of God was pretty sketchy, probably. But, But Moses is fresh off this miraculous encounter at the burning bush. And he tells them, God sees you. God appeared to me to say, I hear your cry. And they began to hold God with a sense of reverence again, just like Moses at the, at the bush. And, and this, this theme of worship then is going to be really important for this story. All of Exodus, but especially t- today. If you, if you think about it, I mean, this kind of harkens back to, to where we were last year in Genesis. Worship really comes from um, the origin story in this creator who as creator gets to set the terms for the use of creation. That's, that's a deep idea. If, if you're the creator, you get to set the terms for how the world can be used. And, and worship is what we call it when people get together and, and enter into the presence of this God to learn what God is like and to learn God's terms for the world and then to, in a sense, sort of enact, to, in, to practice together those terms in sort of symbolic ways. This is what liturgy is. It's not just the words we say, it's all of the movements of worship from the time you get out of your car until you get back in it. All of it is this liturgical act of worship. And the idea is if we'll practice those things, learn what God is like and practice in kind of microcosm, the way we want to be all the time, then our common life will come to reflect the image of God when we leave this place out into the world. It's like, um, remember Mr. Miyagi and the wax on, wax off? That's kind of what worship is like. You come to learn the movements. It doesn't really make sense up front, but we're learning these movements. We're enacting these stories, and they will teach us who God is, how to, to use creation rightly, and um, so that our existence will icon, will image God, God's existence, really, to the rest of the world. That's what, that's what worship can do. So we pick up the story here um, where, we, uh, where Jeff had us reading this morning at um, 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they can celebrate a festival in the desert to honor me. But Pharaoh repried, replied, Who is the Lord that I should obey when he says to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. In this um, first paragraph, there are are a couple of big firsts here. It's the first time that any biblical prophet uses this phrase, Ko amar Hashem Elohei Yisrael." it's thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, which which is kind of like the standard prophetic address for all of the rest of the the prophets. It's actually thought to come from ancient heralds. You know, they didn't have newspapers. So you had some, some herald would go and stand in the square and then announce and say, Thus says the king, thus says the emperor. So Moses, it speaks as God's herald. So these are not Moses' words, they're, they're the Lord's words. And, and those words are another one of the first. It's the first time Moses says to Pharaoh, the Lord's words, um, Shalach et Ami, let go my people, or let my people go. This great iconic phrase. Of Exodus. Notice, by the way, Moses um, is not claiming they are his people. When, when Moses says, let my people go, this is a big one. People think he means Moses' people. He means, he's speaking for God. He's a herald. God is claiming them as his people. It's a big, big thing. Also notice that the first time he's um, asking Pharaoh to, to let them go, he, he doesn't mean they want to leave altogether. He wants to Hogu um, li bamidbar, celebrate a festival, li to me, bamidbar, in, in the wilderness, in the desert. Um, and Hogu is, it refers to like a very particular form of worship where there has to be this pilgrimage. You take a journey together to like a shrine or a holy site. Here it's ba, midbar. <laughs> The desert, which is desert and wilderness, is big theme for all of Israel's life. So they travel out to the desert where important things always happen to them, where they would then perform a sacrifice and then hold this big feast together. It would take days for this to all happen. And so God is asking Pharaoh here, let my people go so they can worship me and remember who their God is and be reminded of this God's terms for how to organize the world. And the implication is sort of if they'll go out into the desert and remember God and get some distance from Egypt a little bit, they, they'll remember what it's like to be free and they won't want to be slaves anymore when they head back. That, that's sort of the ask in the beginning here. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should heed his voice and send off Israel? I do not know the Lord. The, the word there is Yada that we've talked about almost every week. I do not know nor will I send them off. So this, this pharaoh has the same problem as the previous pharaoh who did not yada know Joseph, didn't remember Joseph. This, this guy said, I don't, I don't yada Yahweh, I don't know this God. Um, and, and it's kind of ironic because in his ignorance here, pharaoh actually voices the main question for the entire book of Exodus. This is it right here. He's this this kind of guy who doesn't even know really what he's saying says the main question for all the Exodus narrative, who is the Lord that I should heed his voice. That's the central question. It's who's this God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that we kind of talk about almost like Santa Claus. What's this God's name? Um, what's this God like? What are his terms for how to use the world? And, and is this God this is a big one. Is this God really a power to be reckoned with in the world? And here, Pharaoh states his own problem. He does not know this God. And and what we see in the narrative is Pharaoh's ignorance of God makes him susceptible to the misuse of the world, to the exploitation of people, and really to to a violation of the basic terms of use for creation that are set out by God. And, And here's the thing. It's not just Pharaoh who has this problem. It's in the story even. It's a, it's a problem for the children of Israel as well. In fact, the, the rabbis point out that when um, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh here, they were supposed to bring the elders along with them. And the Hebrew um, midrash, the, the, um, their tradition holds that as they approached the palace, the elders just sort of slipped away. In fear, one by one, right? That's what Rashi says, the closer they got. And so the the children of Israel, they don't really know this God either. And and they're not certain of this God's power. They're kind of afraid they lose their nerve. And so this lack of knowing God, it's a problem for Pharaoh. It's a problem for the elders of the people. And it's one of those things that is a problem for all of us. We don't know who God is and what God is like. We don't just show up here Knowing this and, and knowing God's terms for the use of the world, it's, it's part of our whole tradition, the Hebrew tradition and the Christian tradition. And so we're all susceptible, since we don't know God and what God's like, it, we're all susceptible to the misuse of creation. And we do it all the time. So this is a p- big part of the Hebrew tradition around Exodus. They're telling sort of the backstory of how they struggled to come to know this God, mostly through failure, and they kind of show us their work. Thank heavens how sometimes they got it right and sometimes they got it wrong, but always they wrestled with God. Remember, that's what Israel means, the, the ones who wrestle with God. And so now Moses and Aaron, they come right back at Pharaoh saying, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. Um, uh, scholars that I read this week noticed that the language that Moses and Aaron use here is not sort of the normal effusive language that you would use with a king like this. Usually they use all this deferential speech, a lot of bowing, a lot of scraping, and like, oh, great king, mighty and powerful. Your hair looks so nice. Your breath smells so good, right? Like they would just butter him up. There's none of that. And when Pharaoh tells them no, they just keep badgering him. Look, this guy came to us, right? This God hears the, the cries and we heard God's voice. Now let us take this three-day journey out to the wilderness to do our worship thing. Pharaoh then comes right back at them, reasserting the power and will of the empire. Moses and Aaron, he calls them by name, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors, Pharaoh continued. The people of the land are already so numerous and you would have them rest from their labors? So Pharaoh's Fer- like, look, the, the, the people of the land here, your, your job is not to worship. Your job is to work. He repeats, the, the word is, um, say vala, um, it, it's um, burden, um, forced labor. It's actually, it's kind of an ancient word for sl- servitude or slavery, which is different from like slavery in the American South. It's kind of indentured servitude. It didn't always mean oppression, although these guys are being oppressed. Um, And so Pharaoh says, do do you think these people are free, right, that they can just rest from their labors? By the way, guess what the word rest is in Hebrew? Anyone have a guess? Shabbat, Sabbath, right? And several interpreters note that um, this phrase, the people of the land, is likely a slur against them. It didn't mean like, People of the land, like farmers, it meant dirt people. You guys are dirt people. You're the muddy, dirty folks that aren't clean and clean shaven like the us good Egyptians, right? You're dirt farmers. You're not free. You're my cheap labor force. You want three days off to go on a bender in the in the desert? I don't think so. And and so there's this massive tension right here in this this um, uh, little paragraph, this sentence really, between. Um, these two words that describe the people of the land. What kind of people of the land are they? Is it people of the land, like we'll think later, promised land? Or is it dirt people who are not free? And then there's these two words, Sevala or Shabbat. Which one of those defines? Isn't that cool? It's just kind of hanging there in the balance. Sevala or Shabbat. Which will it be for these people? And which, which one it is depends on what this God is like. And if this God has power. And so th- this is all kind of just hanging in the balance. So Pharaoh, he has an opinion. He wants to weigh in on what's happening here. He says, that same day, Pharaoh ordered the slave masters and the people's foreman, You are no longer to provide straw for the bricks the people are making as you did before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but you will require them to produce the same quantity of bricks as before. Don't reduce it for they are lazy. This is why they're crying. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Give these people harder work to do, he says. That will keep them too busy to pay attention to speeches full of lies. Um, part of why um, Egyptian engineering was and building was sort of the envy of the world, was their brickmaking process. They didn't just dry clay bricks in the sun, they, they baked them in these massive, well, they dried some, but they baked some in these massive superheated kilns, and they weren't just dried clay, they would shred straw into really, really fine particles and mix it into this clay um, at, that was taken from the Nile as a binder. So, so even during like the, the monsoon rain season or like the, the scorching heat, these bricks wouldn't crack, wouldn't break down. So the Egyptians had been providing the Hebrew people with hay but now they have to do it themselves. But their their brick making quota stays the same, right? So it says so the people were dispersed throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. So this is made now horrible work for everybody. Women and children are are likely involved here too. And then the slave masters kept pressing them, keep working, make your daily quota just as when the straw was provided. So they're driving them harder and harder. And the foremen of the people, these are the Hebrew kind of foremen of each little crew, the foremen of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's slave masters had appointed to be over them were flogged, they're getting beaten here, and asked, why haven't you fulfilled your quota of bricks yesterday and today as you did formerly? So they've kind of doubled their work here, and they're driving them relentlessly. And when they can't keep up with their quotas, the Pharaoh's men use this as an excuse to beat on them a little bit. And then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh. They're bypassing Moses and Aaron at this point. Come to Pharaoh and cried, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, calling themselves his servants. Like they're saying, we're, we're good. Like you're the master, we're the servant. No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look how your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. They call, God has called them my people. And they say to your own people, yikes. And so they confront Pharaoh about the violence and they accuse him of injustice. But there's this confusion about, who's the master, who they belong to. And so Pharaoh says, you are lazy, lazy. This is why it says it twice in, in, in Hebrew too. Like it's, you are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, let us go out and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work for no straw shall be given to you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. And the Israelite supervisors saw that they were in trouble when they were told you shall not lessen the daily number of bricks. And as they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron, looking sheepishly, I'm guessing, who were waiting to meet them. And they said to them, Lord, look upon you and judge. You brought us into bad odor with the Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, both Pharaoh and all his men and all the Hebrew people know the problem here is not that they are lazy this has never been a problem they were an extremely industrious labor force for pharaoh the problem is pharaoh has put them in an impossible situation because he's afraid of them their their numbers there there's um, you know their their whole economy is shaped like a pyramid and there's going to be way too many people here down at the bottom of the pyramid and it's making him a little bit crazy, and so he puts them in a situation where they will inevitably fail, and then he calls them lazy, and he blames them and mistreats them. And this is, in a sense, revealing the nature of of empire. Um, Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, he says this, Pharaoh says to the Hebrew slaves, you're lazy, lazy, get to work, which is, of course, what powerful people regularly say about poor people. They are poor because they are lazy. How many of you heard that at one time or another, right? And Pharaoh stands in for all empires here. This is how they get away with injustices. They manipulate their their people into an impossible situation, usually through some sort of system, some bureaucracy, some structure. And when the people falter, they say this is your fault you guys are lazy and it's it's a shell game it's it's a ruse and the pharaoh what he really he just doesn't want to have a discussion about you know labor rights or or religious freedoms he really just wants to make them feel powerless when i was little i had this uncle I don't know if you ever played this game with your kids, but um, I had this uncle who would, when I was small, like four or five, he would grab my arms and and take control of them and then make me hit myself and be like, why are you, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? That's, that's Pharaoh in this. I would usually run off crying, which is a little bit what the people of Israel do. But, that's what he's doing here. It's the playground bully, right? Who like takes the ball from the game and order to like, give us our ball back. He goes, what ball? I don't have a ball. And they're like, the one right there in your hand. And he's like, which, which hand? And then they say, it's in your right hand. And he switches and he's like, no, it isn't. We're, we're, we're you know, that's, this is what bullies do. Everybody knows what's really going on. They're not doing it to actually try and convince them. They're doing it to exhaust and exasperate weaker people to make them feel powerless and frustrated. It's this kind of disingenuous discourse that becomes pervasive in in most empires. And it's pervasive in in our own culture, for sure. I mean, sometimes try to have a meaningful discussion among like diverse groups with diverse backgrounds and opinions, A, a meaningful discussion on something like climate change, right? or healthcare or immigration or you know issues of race racial injustice or economic injustice and the gaslighting the whataboutism you'll encounter or you know slip into yourself ourselves i should say ourselves it's crazy making you know one, one group says something like black lives matter and then immediately somebody goes well don't blue blue lives matter right do all lives matter? You're like, come on, man. Like you you know what is going on here, right? Like, but from the side of the powerful, the point is not to have a meaningful conversation. They don't they're not being genuine, disingenuous. They do not want to have a serious discussion. Their goal is to frustrate people until they just give up, and then the status quo survives. This is this is what empire teaches us about how to organize the world. As I was thinking about this this week, the word that kept coming to mind for me is demoralizing. It's demoralizing. Pharaoh's demoralizing the children of of Israel. Much of our public discourse, cultural discourse, is intended to demoralize people of goodwill, people who are trying to do right and good and trying to work for justice. You think about what that word means, demoralizing, D as in taking away, moralizing, morality, questions of right and wrong, that's what it's meant to do. Demoralizing approaches are meant to exhaust and exasperate until people stop asking questions of morality, of right and wrong, and just settle for a life that diminishes their humanity. Parker Palmer calls it, you end up conspiring in your own diminishment. It's awful. It's a terrible way to live. And it's due to the tactics that are used by the people who don't care about God's terms for the use of the world. And and they don't care about right and wrong. They just want those on the bottom to feel demoralized, so they don't have the energy to fight for a better life. And then they're just kind of stuck, resigned to the horrible status quo that now seems inevitable. People ask for three days off, three days, to go worship. What does Pharaoh do? Doubles their work. and When they miss their quotas, he's like, you're lazy. You're lazy, why why should I let you have a day off? You can't even get your work done, it's gaslighting. It's crazy making. And my guess is that if you've ever tried to fight for justice in an unjust system, you know this feeling. If you've been paired with the outcasts for any period of time and worked for justice in your community, but are, you know, constantly frustrated and on the edge of despair, you know what I mean? Like nothing will ever change the way things are. This is why, this is why you feel that way. Because the pharaohs, the empires, the powerful of the world, they are not on the up and up. They're disingenuous around these things. Pharaoh does not want to have an honest discussion about worker rights and religious freedom. And he's certainly not asking moral questions. This guy has been killing babies, Hebrew babies, male babies. He wants everyone frustrated. His goal is to demoralize anyone who questions the status quo or like calls attention to injustices or criticizes um, the treatment of, of people or criticizes his, you know, use of the world. And what they're after is what happens in the story. Eventually, people get so frustrated that they start blaming each other. They come out of the room and they're like, you did this to us. Moses, Aaron, he put a sword in this guy's hand. That's what Pharaoh wants. Now, Pharaoh is just doing what Pharaohs do, right? Empire's gonna empire. That's what they do. Like, it is their nature. Asserting his power, making sure the empire stays on top no matter what, that is the job of a Pharaoh. Um, But the Exodus narrative seems to suggest that all the pharaohs, like, um, brutality and gaslighting, it's only part of the problem. I mean, there's always another pharaoh, you know what I mean? There's always another Caesar. There's always somebody lording it over other people. And this is only part of the problem in the Exodus story because at least part of the responsibility for what has gone haywire in creation lies with the Hebrew people who don't know who they are. They don't know that they're free people. And they've, they've accepted the idea that they're, they're slaves, and this is just inevitable because they don't know what it means to be human as, as God intended that to be. And, and what the Exodus story proposes is that the reason the people don't know who they are is because they don't know who God is. And I see this, I mean, I know I'm a pastor, so like the answer to everything is God or Jesus or the church. But I do, when I see, when I look at our culture, I, I mean, I, I see this everywhere. The problem is you don't know God, you know? That's why you treat people like this. You don't know who you are because you don't know who God is. And, and it, to me, honestly, again, because I'm a pastor, it feels like a failure of the church. Because we're, we're supposed to embody a different reality in which God does set the terms for life in our common life. This is, by the way, why, um, part of why Sabbath keeping and weekly worship has been just a non-negotiable for the church for thousands of, of years, right? It's so we don't fall for all the gaslighting of whichever Pharaoh or Caesar or Herod or president or king or whatever is, is in charge at the time. So that we know things like only slaves work seven days a week. Like free people get Shabbat, get Sabbath. And, and, and they don't just go for a hike on sabbath or you know have a family day they come worship and try to understand who god is so they can know who they are and this this practice of sabbath is not just like a good idea that we should do it's built on who god is on god's own life remember god creates for six days and on the seventh day rests we're when we sabbath we're becoming like god and and i think it's this is a problem in our day the church mirrors the culture in in way too many ways. When we image something, we image culture more than we reflect the image of God. And and I mean this, I don't think this about redemption, by the way, I suppose probably every pastor feels that way, but I see Christ in you, I I see it all the time. But the church in general, we're struggling with this. And churches act like businesses, peddling religious goods and services, Competing with other churches for market share, branding and marketing themselves, right? Chasing bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster. This is, this is how corporations behave. I mean, we talk all the time about individualism, consumerism, national, nationalism. These are the rival gods of American culture, and they dramatically shape the American church. I mean, today is the 4th of July. And and churches all over are doing, like, big nationalistic liturgies right now, this morning. Performing the liturgies of nationalism and conflating them with Christian worship. And and that's just a couple of examples. And we're not free of them either. But worship is is meant to be um, a powerful act of resistance against the empires of the world and whichever Pharaoh's in charge at the time, there's always a Pharaoh. And the people who worship God above all else just find it impossible to be co-opted into Pharaoh's projects, the empire's projects. And and, and if they do get co-opted, this is a claim of Exodus, they do get co-opted into Pharaoh's projects. It is not primarily a political problem It is a worship problem. That's Exodus. That's why this can't just be boiled down to like, you know, politics, social, whatever, it's theory, right? If we have forgotten who God is, we will soon forget who we are and what it means to be human. If we've forgotten who God is, then we will forget that God has set the terms for the use of the world. And so we'll start to use it in ways that is abusive to the world, to each other. And and the the liturgies of worship, why we gather, all the movements, again, from when you get out of your car until you go back in, everything that happens is shaped intentionally. We think about it constantly as a staff. We're, We're talking about how visiting goes before and after, and if it fits with the liturgical movements of the people of God who are supposed to reflect the image of God. It's so important what we do. You guys know I have, I have the thing for Stanley Howard, so I love him. He, he puts it very, very delicately here. He says, bad liturgy eventually leads to bad ethics. You begin by singing some sappy, sentimental hymn, and you pray some pointless prayer, and the next thing you know, you've murdered your best friend. Right? <laughs> he's like, very subtle, this Hauerwas guy is. <laughs> and he's joking, but he, he's trying to raise the stakes. You know? He's trying to say, worship isn't that serious what we do. And it, it goes back to Pharaoh's original question, the question for the whole book: "Who is the Lord that I should heed His voice?" It always makes me think of that St. Francis prayer that he prayed all the time. It was kind of his devotional frame that has become part of my life. It's just it's, it comes to me in silence: "Who are you, O Lord, and who am I?" That's what he, that's what Francis would say over and over. Say it with me: "Who are you, O Lord?" And who am I? This is the, this is the refrain of, of the children of God. And it's the central question of Exodus, and it's a central question for all of us because we're God's image-bearing creatures. And it's really easy here in the midst of the, you know, most powerful empire in the history of the world to forget what it means to be image-bearing creatures. And the church is meant to be the one people who refuse to forget. And we gather each week to, to keep the memory alive of who God is and who we are and what God's vision is for the right ordering of creation, God's terms. And, and we do this within this, this power that was released into the world through Christ, this spirit that binds us together into God. We're lucky. It's, it was, it's different now than it was for them. We have this spirit drawing us together and pointing us in, in, a, in a much different way. And so as this part of the story draws to a close here. The stage is sort of set for this epic showdown between Pharaoh's view of the world and God's view. And Pharaoh's view, of course, is symbolized by the pyramid. Look at at the pyramid. That's, That's the shape of it with the very powerful at the top and everything commodified and given value and the value all flowing up toward the top. And then cheap workers at the bottom dealing with injustice. But who cares about those guys, right? and the Pharaoh and all his people and all their armies and all their powers and the priests and the religion, all of it guarding the pyramid shape, guarding the status quo. And it's just awe-inspiring, right? This is on purpose. They weren't like, hey, let's build a you know, a triangle that has four sides. It's like, this is awe-inspiring. It's meant to go, whoa, right? And it's demoralizing to anybody who wants to change the system? I mean, tear down the pyramids. They've been there a, a while, you know? And people have looked to this symbol for a thousand years, right? As a symbol of power and wealth and empire. I mean, you guys, we put it on every dollar bill ever printed. I mean, this, this stuff haunts me. I think about it all the time. Whose image do we bear? carry this around in our pocket all the time. Well, we used to when we got cash, we, but you know. <laughs> the image of Pharaoh, whatever the Pharaoh of the day is, the empires of the world, or the image of the God who hears the cry of the outcasts, where the whole story started, who hears the cry and who yadas it, knows it, like experience is in it with us and feels it with us. And then who decides to work through human agents, like broken, messed up ragamuffins like you and me to put the world to rights again? And the question I think I wanna leave us with, there are actually two, the questions that we're kind of left to wrestle with is, who do we really think sets the terms for life and the use of the world? Who sets the terms? And if we really believe it's God, Yahweh, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, the Father of Jesus. Then, what kind of people does it take to bear witness to a God whose way of being is more compelling than this pyramid? Because that's our task as a church. What kind of people do we have to end up being that we're actually more convincing, more compelling, more enticing? in this pyramid that's been around a long, long time and shapes pretty much every society. This is why we worship. We're trying to tell a better story about what it means to be human. And it's a better story. It's just a better story. If you lay down your life for a friend, you'll find more life getting poured into you than you ever thought possible. You'll be so alive that even death has no power over you. That's our story. And this is where Moses is trying to take us and and the people of God. through lots of twists and turns and ups and downs, but for today, that's really our question. Do we, who do we think sets the terms? And if we believe it's God, what kind of common life do we need to to embody that's more compelling than that pyramid? Let's pray. The Lord, we give you thanks for... um, Moses and the children of Israel and their courage to show their work to us, their courage to share with us the way they struggled to get you. And we just confess we struggled to get you. We struggled to figure out who you are and what your terms are for our lives and for the world. But we just we just love you so much. and We ask you to lead us. As... Um, workers, as bosses, as business owners and friends and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and students, all the different roles, neighbors, families. Lead us to organize our common life in such a way that we bear witness to you, the God who hears our cries. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we're going to receive communion. I um, we'll invite each of you to um, come forward here in a moment to receive the elements, and then you can take them back to your seat, and we'll, we'll open them there, but we'll say our blessing on them um, together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup also saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he said, as often as you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, remember my death until I come again. And so this is why we do it. We we gather to turn to his body, his blood, and to, to receive it into our bodies and be made of the stuff he's made of. That's the the symbolism. And so this is why we share communion. So I invite you to, to pray with me, a blessing. Lord, we give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world um, feast on us and taste and see your goodness to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come to the table?